Welcome to The Motivated Mind, where I challenge you to expand your perspective on how to achieve a successful life through motivational lessons, reflections, and interviews with other motivated minds. What is up? Welcome to episode 142. Thanks so much for listening. It means so much to me. If I've brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit that subscribe button. Don't be a stranger. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook. Let me know what you want to hear more of, and please be sure to share the podcast. I'm truly grateful for your support. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hashdash. Currently, consumers leverage multiple online resources to research, find, and purchase cannabis products. Hashdash has created a single source for education, products, brands, dispensaries, and takes it one step further by pairing users with products that match their profile and needs through their unique matching algorithm. The smartest way to search and match with cannabis products. Sign up for their free beta release at Hashdash.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter at Hashdash and on Instagram at Hashdash.com. Today we have a very special guest on the podcast, Ron Halliday, founder of First Floor Equity. Ron is building an interesting career in real estate, uniquely focused on purchasing underperforming hotels and repositioning them into hybrid housing. Ron and I dive into his journey in real estate, how he's achieved significant returns for their investors, some advice for those of you looking to purchase your first home in a limited inventory market with high prices, advice around dipping your toes into real estate, and decision-making. I hope you all find value in our conversation. Ron, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking the time today. Well, thank you, Scott. Really appreciate you having me on. Real estate has always been very intriguing to me. Actually, my my first house, and I guess I'm, I'm a fan of roller coasters. You know that saying, we'll build the plane, we'll jump off the cliff, and we'll build the plane on the way down? Huge fan of that. That That is what has attracted me to startups from the dawn of time, at least my existence here on this earth. And real estate is certainly a roller coaster event in some scenarios, right? How did you first get your feet wet in real estate? What was that driver for you, Ron, to say, this is my jam. This is something I'm passionate about. This is my North Star. Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, it, it really more evolved. It, it wasn't like a you know, a bright light watershed moment, you know, Damascus Road or anything. Uh, it was more like my wife was a nurse and she was a nurse for 20 years, plus or minus. Uh, a few years ago, probably about six years ago now, she decided she was ready to retire. You know, she'd spent enough time in nursing. She wanted to go on and do something different. So when she retired, uh, she was looking around for something to do and she got interested in real estate. So she decided she wanted to go get a real estate license. And so she did. And so she drugged me to all the meetup groups and boot camps and everything that was available around. And we eventually ended up joining up with a group called Fortune Builders. And so went to all of their boot camps and things and learned everything we possibly could about real estate. And the more we learned, the more excited I got about it. I really liked the whole idea of you know, building wealth, but, you know, actually doing some good in the process. 
it's kind of like my partner's favorite saying is we're, we're trying to do good while doing well. So like the that. idea is to make something positive happen, but see a double digit return while you're doing it. Perfect. Love it. And Love so it. we started out really with the, you know, the self-directed IRA and we bought some small multifamilies. So we owned some duplexes and a triplex. And then we bought some single family homes and started selling them contract for deed. And then we did some flips and kind of tried our hands at a number of different things. And we just decided it was time to take the step up. It's, it's like another friend of mine is kind of doing the same thing. And he said he was tired of hunting rabbits. He was going to take on hunting elephants. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do now. So we started this about, oh gosh, a year and a half ago. I met my partner, David Peters, at a meetup group. And so we just started chatting about this and that and the other thing and realized we had a lot of common interests. And he was real big in the multifamily space, had been doing a bunch of syndication stuff and some passive investing and was doing a development project. And so we just got to talking and kind of decided to join forces. Now, before I retired, I retired a few years after my wife did, but before I retired, I was a lean Six Sigma black belt working in industry. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but basically it's just making processes better. So I worked in multiple different industries, helping them make their processes, you know, better, faster, cheaper. The whole focus being on, you know, find the best process, thoroughly document it, teach everybody to do it that way. So we're all doing the same thing the same way. The idea is if you have the perfect process, you'll always get the perfect outcome. And so that was kind of the whole idea. So we did that for a number of years. So that's kind of the, the strength that I bring to the partnership is really around, you know, process focus and, you know, the um, mathematical modeling and figuring out the, you know, what the underwriting, that sort of thing. And David really brings the, the more of the syndication experience and the, the multifamily, you know, um, world experience to the, to the partnership. So anyway, we started looking at multifamilies and we went through a whole lot of deals here. This, you know, be a year and a half ago or so before COVID. And I don't know how it is in the rest of the world. We live in Minneapolis and in the upper Midwest, you know, multifamilies were incredibly hot properties. So it was almost impossible to find any kind of a deal that had anything better than a six cap. And it just, the, the returns just weren't there in our opinion. Risk was too high, returns were too low. And so we kept looking around and looking around. And as we were looking at all these apartment deals, we kept having these hotels come across our, our desk, you know, from the brokers. And the more we started looking into the hotels, the more interesting that became. I mean, multifamilies are selling, you know, 120 to 200K a door. Uh, I can buy hotels all day long at, at 40K a door or less. And so there's a lot of potential there. So we started looking into it. Uh, my, uh, my partner, David, actually got into a hotel deal. So they own and are operating one right now uh, that's, that's been quite successful. And so we were trying to leverage that experience. So we've got one more under contract that's in Sioux Falls, should probably close in the next month or so. We just got another one under contract in Fargo. And we've got two or three signed LOIs out there that we're working to bring to contract. So our plan is to close on five or six of them in 21. And what we see is the beauty is we're taking a, a failing asset. I mean, these are properties, uh, many of which were struggling before COVID, 
because there was just a big overgrowth in the hotel industry for whatever reason. And so with COVID, then they, they really hit the tank. And so we're taking a struggling asset, something that's either in bankruptcy or soon will be, and we're going to take it and turn it around and make it a contributing member of the financial community, you know, pay taxes, you know, have payroll, all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, bring housing options to the community that they didn't previously have. Now, and that can take a couple of different forms. Uh, probably the one we do or planning on doing, the one we're doing right now and what we will probably do the most going forward is what we call hybrid housing. And so hybrid housing really means you're running it like a nightly hotel. So if somebody wants to stay there for one, two, three, four or five days, they're more than welcome to do that. But we also have weekly rates. So there's a discount on a weekly rate. And if you buy four or more weeks in advance, then there's a discount on that too. And so it really provides a lot of um, flexible housing. Um, if you think about it, you said you travel a lot for work. So right. I'm sure you're well aware that if you go somewhere, if you want to say stay for seven to 10 days, hotel works really well. If you want to stay six months or more, you can start looking for a traditional apartment lease. If you're in that limbo between 10 days and six months, there aren't any good cost-effective options. And that's really where the hybrid housing comes in. We can provide somebody basically a micro apartment. You get free TV and internet. Uh, you get you know clean sheets once a week. We feed you breakfast every day, and it's it's a lot less expensive than you know most Airbnb or you know extended stay America or that sort of thing. So it, it fills a real niche. Um, the other thing we're going to be doing in some communities where it's applicable, as you mentioned, is, is turning them into micro apartments. And that really is kind of a different animal because in most cities, at least in the upper Midwest, in my experience, zoning for hotels is different than the zoning for multifamily. And so if you want to change it to a real multifamily, you have to go through the city and the zoning commission. And it's either a variance or it's a true zoning change. And it really it totally hinges on what does the city want in that location. If they're good with multifamily and feel like they need something like that, then it's a great thing to do. You know, I'd be all for it. It's certainly good for the community. You can make some money at it. But if the city's not in favor of it, I wouldn't even try. I mean, there's there's no point hitting your head against the brick wall. So I love this. So it's very ironic that you say this limbo piece. So Ron, I love the I love the angle. I love the value and I love the differentiator here with what you're doing. It's interesting and why I say it's timely. I was just listening to another podcast and they were talking about exactly this idea. This limbo mode is super fascinating to me because there's been something interesting that's been happening, especially with the millennial generation. And there is less of a need from the perspective of millennials to own things, right? Going to lease instead of actually, you know, buying a vehicle, um, you know, going into apartments as opposed to buying a home. And it's very fascinating, this limbo piece. So there's the millennial piece and I'm, I'm super curious, you know, who are the tenants, it, millennial generation, but I would also assume business individuals, right? And so I think what you guys have going on that's very timely is especially this stuff with COVID. People have moved out of major cities and in, in some areas in some regard have moved out 
And this idea of actually needing to be anchored down to one spot, I think, is very interesting. And we live in such this technology world that allows you to be connected from afar, live anywhere. And this limbo period, this is intriguing to me. So I'd be really curious, Ron, tenants, if you can release that, you know, millennials, uh, business individuals, who's spending time, um, you know, in these places? Well, just as you said, Scott, you know, uh, there's certainly some millennials. We get a lot of project workers. So whether it's a construction worker, you know, coming into town to do maintenance on a plant that they're going to be there a couple of weeks, you know, IT people coming in, helping a local business, putting in a new ERP system is going to take them six, eight, 10 weeks. We've got the traveling nurses. We've got, you know, people who have come to town. Uh, they don't quite know if they want to rent or buy or don't quite know where, and they need a place to stay for three months while they're getting their feet on the ground to get that stuff figured out. Uh, Obviously, we have people in transition. I mean, unfortunately, people do lose their job, get divorced, have life events occur that kind of, you know, upsets their their normal balance. They need a place to stay for, you know, a a month or two or three. So it's really all of the above. Uh, and I was actually talking to, to one of the guys who lives in the hotel, and he's been there probably six or eight months, and he's got a pretty good job. So I just asked him, I said, well, you know, why? I mean, obviously, you've got money. I mean, you're not living here because you can't afford to live somewhere else. You know, why do you live here? He says, well, uh, at the end of the month, you charge me about the same amount as a one-bedroom apartment down the street. Um, it's furnished. You give me breakfast every morning. I get clean sheets once a week. I get free HBO and internet. Why would, oh, and we got the pool, can swim in the pool, work out at the little workout room. You know, why would I want to leave? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it, just like you're saying, it fits It fits a certain group, you know, a certain group of people that that's, that's what they want. It's, it's not permanent. Um, it's easy to change. You know, every week you can change your mind, do something different. Right. But if you want to stay, you can stay as long as you want. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And you had said earlier, Ron, about this, you being obsessed with with process and efficiency. And I am a huge fan. Actually, it says it on a bunch of my profile, obsessed with process and growth because fine-tuning your efficiency is literally how you grow leaps as opposed to little steps. And one thing that's that I've been aware of is so we're here on the East coast and we have a six acre property and I love my solitude because like I said, I, I travel a ton last year was different where that was not the case because of COVID, but I like the solitude. I like the quiet. I'm an extrovert type person, as you could probably tell. Um, And I love community, but I also like to have my peace and quiet so I can put my head down, get my work done. And I can also go into kind of that calm realm at the end of the day, if need be. Mm. But there's one thing that I've really noticed. And it's funny because my parents always used to say it as they've gotten older, like we don't want property. We don't want to have to deal with all of this stuff. This takes time for us to to manicure the lawn and, and do this and do that. And it's funny, you know, I'm, I'm only 30 years old, but there have even been plenty of times where I have, I have, and more so I've been getting other people to do the maintenance because the ROI for me to sit there and do these things, I just can't justify it. And I do think even part of that is 
this mentality with the millennial generation. And again, nothing against it. I'm a millennial. I'm in that generation. It's this component of efficiency and really where you want to be spending your time. And I have a really close friend. I actually started my first business with him and his dad, when he had his first kid said something, do you really want to be out watching your lawn grow and mowing your lawn or spending time watching your kid grow? And he said, that sentence just made me kind of stop in my tracks and really think about what was important to me and where I should be spending my time. So I think it's really fascinating what you guys are doing and are you holding on? So is the is the long-term play for you guys to hold on to these assets long-term and actually manage all of these assets? Um, or are you looking to offload at some point and step away? I know retirement, but I mean from a business standpoint. Sure, sure. You know, I think that we haven't held one long enough to know the answer to that yet. Right. But right now, the plan is to refinance probably at three to five years uh, pay out the investors and then, you know, take, take the proceeds and, you know, buy four more. Got it. Got it. Interesting. So this talk around COVID and travel and sure. less travel, more travel. So COVID's flipped a ton of things on its head. And one of those biggest transitions has been in business and specifically the workforce and a majority of the population still is working from home. From your perspective, how do you think this post-COVID world looks like, specifically around commercial real estate? Because I've interacted with a ton of people that have lived around Boston and have moved an hour out of the city. And they say, why would I spend this much on real estate when $2 million an hour outside of Boston is going to get me a lot more bang for my buck? So I'm I'm curious what, from your perspective, how this post-COVID world is going to look like and how that's going to affect or transition some of this commercial real estate stuff? Yeah, it's really hard to tell. But my, my belief would be that the, the pendulum always swings. Right now, there's a big push to kind of move out of the city and to, you know, not work in the office, work from home, you know, telecommute from wherever. Uh, it's my belief that the pendulum will swing back the other way. Not as far as it was before, but I don't think you're going to see, you know, an exponential shift. When well, I mean, when the dust settles, I'm talking in five years, I think you will see probably less commercial office space in use, but I don't think it's going to be 50% less. I think it's going to be 20% less. And I think there will be more, you know, telecommuting. I, obviously, the, the technology has gotten so much better. I've gone to a couple of these virtual conferences now where you, you know, you pick the table you want to sit at and you can talk to that person and then talk to that person and do this stuff. So the technology is there, but it still loses a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. in that interpersonal communication and just kind of the whole feel of the thing. And I, and I think people do, you know, have a certain need to be close and to talk and to do that kind of stuff. I think it's more important, the more creative the work that you're doing, meaning if it's something that takes a lot of brainstorming and you're doing a lot of, you know, uh, try, you know, try storming, you're going to try some stuff and see what happens and then, you know, take notes and, and make changes and, you know, that, you know, fast development stuff. I don't think telecommuting really lends itself to that very well. Mm. I think that's really more a collaborative environment. Now, if your job is to be a CPA and do somebody's taxes with your head down in a computer screen, do that on the beach in Maui. I don't think it matters. Right, right. right. But 
you know, time will tell, you know, people are funny. That, that's the one thing you can count on is they're going to decide what they want to do and what matters to them. And, you know, it'll, it'll work out where it works out. But right. I think you're right. I think commercial real estate will change, especially in the office space. Uh, they're complaining right now in, in Minneapolis because of negative absorption of, you know, corporate space. You know, Target just moved out to the suburbs and another big company just moved out to the suburbs and they're still building high rises. And so the question is, well, what's going to happen to these high rises? Are they going to sit empty or, you know? Right. No right. Yet? right. Yeah. They're, humans always struggle with uncertainty. We don't, we, most people fear what they don't know. Something I talk about a lot on, on the podcast. Yeah. And so of course all of this would be based on speculation, but I do agree with your hypothesis or just your assessment of this pendulum swing, because this happens everywhere, right? Political issues, political figures, anything. There's always, whoa, we're way over to the right. And then we swing way over to the left. There uh, a middle ground is not a term, at least here in the United States, that is received at scale over long periods of time. It goes bounces from one side to the other. So I agree with you. I think it's it's probably going to be a balance and it's probably going to be drawn out over a five year period. It's not someone's going to flip on the switch. And I think that word going back to normal or the new normal and this and that is this word people have gotten hung up on. Like they think it's switching off a, a light switch in their house. Well, it's off right now. We're in COVID. And when everything goes back to normal, it's going to flip back on. And we're just going to run right back to where we were. And I also agree with you on the creative aspect, having my team spread out all over the place can be very complex. And I've been super proud of what we've been able to accomplish from a digital world but you're 100% right. It's not easy. It has its challenges. And I think it's also pulled people together. But at the end of the day, we are social beings. Even if we are able to commute via Zoom and all of these other uh, digital platforms, they're amazing in what they've been able to create from an efficiency standpoint. But there's a fine line in the sand. And just like you were saying, the niche individuals that come to stay at your places – it's the same exact thing. So away from the, the commercial side, what's your, what are your thoughts around the housing side? So I, I've, I've heard so much stuff around this and I just sit back and I listen, but a lot of listeners may be interested in their first home and not so much from an investment standpoint, but they're getting priced out of markets. They're getting buried in higher, high bids. Um, how do you think this is going to play out Again, I know a lot of this is speculation. And what suggestions would you give to someone in this position that's looking for a first-time home, but they're looking at prices and inventory and their jaws down to the floor? Well, that's, that's a tough problem. Again, I can only speak to the you know Minneapolis, upper Midwest market because that's the only one I know. I wouldn't even speculate on what's happening in California. You know, I sure. have friends out there and they're buying, you know, $1.5 million teardowns, which I can't even imagine. But right, right. Around here, you know, an average house, you know, used to be $200,000. Well, now it's pushing three fifty, And that's pretty expensive for a lot of people. But then you go and you look at the cost of building a house. I mean, I was just at the Home Depot the other day and they want $6 for a two by four. It was two fifty, you know, two months ago. Right. You know, 40 bucks for a sheet of plywood. I mean, if you multiply that out on a house, I mean, you're talking 175 to 200 dollars a square foot, 300, 350. You can't reproduce the house for that, right. you know. So, where is it going to go? I don't know. 
You know, uh, people are being priced out of the market and it's unfortunate. And I've kind of toyed with that idea, you know, is, is there something we can do with construction to do something different? I know some people have tried, you know, modular housing of some sort. I saw somebody that had a, a basically a 3D printer that was printing small one bedroom houses out of concrete. Said, that's that. a good idea. I like that. Right. You know, if you can make a little, you know, a tiny home community and, and, you know, make them for, you know, $2,000 a piece or something that that becomes real practical, but, mm -hmm. you know, traditional construction and, and part of it is, is the, what we see for home buyers, at least here, everybody thinks that they need to have a, a bedroom for each kid and four bathrooms and a three car garage and all this stuff, but they don't want to spend the money. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I live in a fifties Rambler. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a, you know, a three bedroom, one bath house with a one car garage built in 1955. Mm -hmm. uh, plenty of people in the day raised six kids in a house like this. Right. You know? So it's, it's all in what are your expectations, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but who knows what's going to happen. Right. 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 Yeah. And, and I think that's a, that's a great point to riff off for a second because I've seen this is this is a thing, especially here in the United States, living beyond means, trying to impress the neighbors, all of these things. This has been going on for quite some time. I do see, from my perspective, a shift in people being more thoughtful about resources, you know, their impact on the environment, tiny homes becoming massive, companies popping up, more companies with modular homes, 3D printing. I've seen hemp um, homes. I have seen uh, freight containers being converted into homes and people buying a piece of property and putting up 12 of them. And I'm not sure if those are more for a long term or a short term, you know, a weekend getaway or a little vacation here and there. But the real estate world has just been very fascinating and changing and shifting rapidly. And so off of that point, I'd love to understand, Ron, in, in turbulent times or just with any of your ventures in the past, how have you separated those emotions from decision making? I work with my team on on this a, a lot and right when emotions set in and emotions they just throw off everything you know the decision making the ability to think smart about something goes completely out the window so in your in your previous ventures in those turbulent times how have you separated the emotion side of you and the decision side of you to make sure that not only you're showing up for your customers, your investors, your employees, and yourself, but you're thinking wisely about those pieces? Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. 
Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Well, I, I think it goes a little bit back to, you know, making good decisions, knowing how you go about making a decision. I remember a long time ago, uh, I took a course in college and they were specifically talking about decision making. And the biggest point the professor was, was making was that people make the mistake of assigning the quality of the outcome to the quality of the decision. And the decision and the outcome have absolutely nothing to do with each other. I mean, you can make the best decision of all time. You did the research, you had the data, you know, you thought about all the possible scenarios and you made a decision and a tornado came and, and blew you out of the water. It does not mean it was a bad decision. It was a great decision, just a bad outcome. And on the other side, you can decide to sell the family farm and take all of your money and buy lottery tickets. And if you hit the big winner, Nobody's going to say that was a great decision, right, right, <laughs> <It's>, right. <laughs> regardless of the outcome. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think it's, it's really trying to get out of the emotion and go back to process and how do you make a decision and what factors are you taking into account and, you know, have you really thought through it to the best of your ability? Now you can, the other side of that, of course, I was reading a book by Colin Powell and he was saying that if you're 60% certain you're doing the right thing, you need to act. Because if you wait till you're 80% certain, the opportunity will probably pass you by. Mm -hmm. So it's it's both sides. You, you can never know for sure. Uh, it's a little bit like you were saying, jump out of the airplane and build the, you know, build the new plane on the way down. Mm -hmm. But you better be a have a pretty good idea how you're going to build an airplane and where you're going to get the materials and some of that kind of stuff before you jump. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think a, a lot of people, and I struggled with this early on, chase this idea of a perfect outcome. Because of course, you're faced with a decision. Immediately in your subconscious, what happens is I have fabricated the best case scenario. And it's like, okay, but this is all made up in, in headland. This isn't right. made up in reality land right. and you get married and attached to this thing and your, your brain wraps around this idea that that's the ideal circumstance. That's the ideal um, outcome. And unfortunately that's just not reality. And so when that outcome doesn't happen, people are disheartened to, to try again or put themselves out there or be vulnerable or take another, you know, this is that risk adverse piece where people pull back into their shell. And I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And I love that. I, I love that around if you're 60% certain, do it. There is no a hundred percent certainty on thing, but I think it's being intentional and confident on those decisions and saying that, I did everything based on my assessment that I thought was the right decision. And I can hold my hat high on those things that I acted to the best of my ability with the information that I had at hand, not sit there exactly. and critique yourself and beat yourself up for information you found out a year later. Well, of course we don't right. have time travel yet that I'm aware of. So 
how can you beat yourself up over that? Um, so yeah, I think in business, this is critical. I also think with, with teams, it's, it's really critical, but, um, I'm curious on the real estate, back to the real estate side a bit, um, for, for those that are just exploring this idea, trying to dip their toes in, let's step away from someone buying their first house, but for, for listeners that are looking to, to get into real estate for the first time, what is the best avenue for them? Where do they start? I know it can be intimidating for some. Um, you know, what are some investing strategies for for those individuals, kind of at a thirty thousand foot uh, standpoint? Sure, absolutely. Well, I say the first thing is you have to define your goals. Why are you doing it, and what are you trying to accomplish? Uh, if if you don't know that, it's kind of like you know the Cheshire Cat said: if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Mm-hmm. So you really have to know what what are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to build generational wealth? Are you trying to build passive income so you can quit your job? You know, do you want to be actively involved? Do you like swinging a hammer and rehabbing houses? Or do you like doing spreadsheets? Or do you just want to be a passive investor where you give somebody else the money and they send you a K-1 at the end of the year and you didn't have to do anything? So you have to know where you want to get to and what part of it you like to do and don't like to do. It's kind of like you were saying outsourcing. I think outsourcing is a beautiful, beautiful thing. What you need to do is understand what things do you like to do? What do you want to do? And what do you not want to do? Mm-hmm. And, and which of those things are important to your business and which aren't? And the things that you like to do that are important to the business, those are the ones you need to focus on. And then you need to get somebody else to do everything else. And we all know nobody can do it as good as I can. <laughs> But you just have to get over that and let other people do it. And, and frequently, they'll fool you and do it better than you could have. But mm-hmm. you, you have to get out from under the, the mundane so you can focus on the on the critical and do it effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with this because I think a number of people jump at something that looks good, the shiny object in the water. What's that bright thing? Yeah, exactly right. And we <laughs> jump in that question of why. What's your intention? What are you looking for that generational wealth? Like you said, are you looking for passive income? These are all questions that, you know, I, even outside of real estate, we should be asking ourselves, you know, I dropped an episode on, on purpose and this idea around purpose and passion. And I think a majority of the, the world's population does not stop to ask why why are you doing this thing or why do you want to do this thing what is the 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 driver inside of you that says this is for me and that's why i was really curious on the real estate thing because i am not surprised that your answer was that at the beginning that well it kind of developed with time and we have you know and I, it goes back into education we won't go down that road but at 18 for um you know an 18 year old to know exactly what they're going to do for the rest of their life it's like that it does not work that way. It it doesn't. And you know, there are some road to the rock and roll band. Right. And, and, and off you go. And it's, I always, I always tell people go out and explore. And that doesn't necessarily mean you need to travel the world. If you want to do that, go and do that, but go and explore because I would say that I get a majority of my DMS are my direct messages are around, I don't know what my passion is. I don't know what my purpose is. And 
normally it's there, it's deep down inside, but it's that evaluation, that that self-reflection, self-discovery to say, what is my purpose? What is my passion? And go and just try a bunch of different things. You know, exactly. I, I'm all for making sure that you don't juggle too many things at once, of course, because you're going back to process, there's going to be major struggle there. But if you're trying to hunt and find those things, you've got to explore, you've got to find new mountaintops, you've got to find new views, you've got to find fresh water, you've got to find good land, you've got to find all of these things It doesn't happen by just sitting there and kind of him and Han. It just doesn't work this way. But oh, segueing off of this, this goes for any business irrelevant of industry. The backbone of any business is your employees, your team. And I say this all the time to my team, but they are the blood that pumps through the heart of the organization that keeps it going. And I've always said, you work for your employees, not the other way around. With First Floor Equity and, and even previous ventures for you, how have you built high performance teams and really became like a, a true leader to these individuals because anytime it doesn't happen often, but when anybody on my team, whether new or has been there for a while says, boss, I cringe at that word. I cannot stand. It's just my own thing. I cannot stand the word boss. I always want to be a leader to my people mm -hmm. and I work for my people. So I'm really curious, how have you turned and dialed that knob over the year, especially with this process component for you? Well, that's a good question. I say, for, for, for me, when I'm working with a team, it, it always starts with, you know, education. You have to be sure that they have the the knowledge and the experience that they need to do their jobs effectively, and then they need, you know, clear goals, and then you have to provide them the tools to to accomplish the goals. So, I mean, if you're talking about the hotel manager, say. We're going to sit down with the hotel manager. And we're going to set certain goals. So we want our online reviews to be, you know, four stars, you know, 80% of the time. We want 65% occupancy. We want a average of $65 a night daily rate for the month. And so we lay out the goals. Then it's in it's the manager's job to come up with the plans to accomplish the goals. And then we'll sit down together and say, okay, well, that's the plan. What do you need to implement that plan? I mean, what tools do you need? What money do you need? What personnel do you need, et cetera? And then we will see how we go about providing them what they say they need. And then we hold them accountable to reaching the goals, whatever they were. Because you, you helped set the goals. You set the plan. You said, told me what you needed. Now you got to do it. And if you have a problem or an issue, come talk to me. Well, we obviously can make changes as things go along, but that's the plan. And, and you're the one that's in, uh, eventually responsible. Mm -hmm. And I found that, that people do respond to that. Again, you have to you know, be open. You listen to their concerns, et cetera, but you, you have to have to hold them accountable. You, know, you, can't, you can't be their friend. You have to be their leader, you know, manager, you know, whatever term you want to use. But if that's your role, you have to fulfill your role if you expect them to fulfill their role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautifully said, because I, I've been a firm believer that if anybody fails on my team, it's on me. I failed. Not them. I failed. Was I clear in expectations? Was I clear on what their goals were? 
Was I clear on how to get it done? Was I clear that I could be an ear when they needed help and additional clarity or resources from the enterprise? And this is why just leadership has always been something near and dear to me because I think I said it on this podcast a while ago. There was a, I went through with one of my coaches, I went through this exercise at the end of last year that if I was a fly on the wall and I wasn't there, what would my team say about me? And whatever that gap was, how do I then change it? So if it's, you know, Scott isn't, doesn't clarify these things enough for me, or he isn't there when I need him to pick up his phone or answer his emails, whatever those things are that I am uh, speculating or I'm getting from anonymous feedback from my team, I need to change that. I have failed my team. And I think in business as a leader, if you look at it, everything is my fault, you can get to solutions a lot faster than beating around the bush and not taking that on. And that doesn't mean you need to take a hit to ego because I know with some leaders, ego is a thing and you can't let that stuff get in the way. You work for them. If they mess up, it is your mistake. It is your mess up. Take accountability for that. And truly, instead of saying, this is a people problem, it very well might just be a you problem or the way that you're listening or the way that you're digesting information or whatever the case is, or a hiccup with your your process. Many, many different things. But leadership has always been very near and dear to me. And so I was very curious about, about that world for you. So um, bouncing back here to the the real estate side again, for those that are in the residential side and they're looking to get into more of the commercial side, which I, I know a couple of people that are in uh, real estate and this is exactly what happened. They got into real estate. They did really well in real estate and they're like, what's that next big thing for me? What's that step? Well, of course they look over to the commercial side of the industry and go, how do I get into there? Or I need to get into there. So what are some options for those that are in in that position that have been successful in residential, they're looking to get into commercial? Where would you suggest that they kind of point their vision if that's their intention is to get into the commercial side? Well, I would say the first thing to do is really learn about commercial real estate because it is significantly different than residential real estate. Right. The terminology is different. The the methods of doing business are different. Uh, the kind of the, the story, I mean, residential real estate, the realtor is considered to be the, the shark or the wolf and the, the general public are the sheep, you know, so there's lots of government built-in protections and disclosures and things you have to tell people and all that stuff to protect them. When you move into the world of commercial real estate, everybody's a shark and everything's negotiable. And nothing about the business works the same way. Mm. And so I think you need to to really get with a good commercial broker. I mean, assuming you are, I don't know if you're, you're talking as a realtor or as an investor or, but, but either way, I would say get with a good commercial broker Mm -hmm. and spend some time with them talking about the business and how the business works and then figure what part of the business do you want to be in? Again, commercial real estate is a huge field. It's a whole different thing if you're going to try to buy a mobile home park or you're looking to buy a high rise in Manhattan. The dynamics, the dollar, I mean, everything about it's different. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the financing structure, you know, you got to figure out what's mezzanine debt and what's, you know, what's the capital stack and what's a waterfall. And, you know, there's lots of stuff that does not exist in residential real estate. Mm-hmm. 
So I think there's a fairly steep learning curve on, on how does it work? And then you really have to find, again, what are you interested in? Are you interested in owning a, a shopping mall? Are you interested in retail? Are you interested in, you know, commercial? I mean, I'm sorry, industrial. So do you want to own a factory? Do you want to own a warehouse? Uh, do you want to be involved in hotels or apartments or, you know, development? You know, are you interested in land arbitrage? I mean, there's a billion different things you can get into and they're all different. Mm -hmm. You'll never be able to learn it all. But if you can get a good overview of what all the different parts of commercial real estate are and sort of get a handle on what interests you, what area do you want to dig deep into, I would say pick one area and really learn it well and, and get out there and actually do some deals. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like you say, you can't, you make the best decision you can, you are going to fail, you just want to fail forward. Mm -hmm. You need to, to learn from your mistakes. Hopefully you didn't put all of your, all of your eggs on the first bet, you know, <laughs> hopefully you have a few left to fall back on if it doesn't work out and you just keep moving forward. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Intentional and understanding what you need, what you want, what is your North star here? What is your purpose? What are you interested in? Why are you interested in it? And then double down on that thing mentally, do your research, do your due diligence, expand your network. Just don't jump in blindly. I love it, Ron. So I appreciate you taking the time today. If, you know, where can people find you? Where can people um, connect with you if, if that's a possibility here? Because I, I certainly like to to plug that information in the show notes with these episodes. Okay, I appreciate that. You know, our website is www.firstfloorequity.com. And it's just F-I-R-S-T, floor equity. Uh, it, we have an investor club and a newsletter. So if anybody wants to come out there and join the club, we'd love to hear from you. We'd like to share information with you. We've got some, you know, videos and some blog posts and some, hopefully some podcasts we can put out there, you know. There so, you go. I like it. I like it. Lots of interesting things. Uh, there's a link on there. You can schedule a call with me or you can schedule a call with uh, my partner, David. Love to talk to you, you know, whether... You, it's just a general question, or if you think you might want to invest with us, whatever, you know, love to talk to you about it. Uh, uh, you can email me directly, ron at firstfloorequity.com. Again, love to hear from you. Uh, I can't tell you I'll answer instantaneously, but I can promise I will answer. I love it. I love it. Thank you, Ron. I super appreciate your your time and sharing your wisdom. And this has been a different one because we don't, I haven't talked a lot about uh, real estate or, or business much. It's more, like I said, around mindset. And we spoke a little bit about that today, but I think the real estate piece is, is been more intriguing for a lot of people over the last three or five years, and it's been picking up a lot of interest. And so I appreciate you sharing that wisdom and taking time out of your weird day to, to share your experience, the things you've gone through and provide listeners with advice. I know it's going to bring a lot of value to people. Thanks for listening to The Motivated Mind with your host, Scott Lynch. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into getting into real estate with Ron Halliday. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at the motivated underscore mind and on Facebook at The Motivated Mind Podcast. Don't forget to join me next week for another episode. I love you all and thanks so much for listening.
The Motivated Mind is a mindset production.